Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome back to Professor Christopher Chappell's lectures about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Let's continue with the next lecture. The ones absorbed in nature and yet free from the body still have an intention of becoming. Others have practiced faith, energy, mindfulness, samadhi, and wisdom. The strongly intense practitioners are near to samadhi. Hence, the distinctions between mild, medium, and ardent. Bhava prayayo videha prakriti layanam. Bhava prayayo videha prakriti layanam. Bhava prayayo videha prakriti layanam. Shraddha virya smriti samadhi prajna purvaka iteration. Shraddha virya smriti samadhi prajna purvaka iteration. Shraddha virya smriti samadhi prajna purvaka iteration. Tivra samvegana masana, tivra samvegana masana, Tivra samvegana asana. Mirdhu madhya adimatra tvat tatpopi visheshaha. Mirdhu madhya adimatra tvat tatopi visheshaha. Mirdhu madhya adimatra tvat Tato pi visheshaha. Okay, Patanjali was not only a philosopher, he was also a keen observer of human behavior. And in this cluster of sutras, he identifies different gradations of practitioner. And for those of us who are accustomed to Indian philosophy and even Indian culture writ large, we see that the containment frame, rather than being in a binary modality, as is the case with much of sort of good versus evil mentality, that it generally falls into a trinary or into a threefold analysis. And we see this with the philosophy of time, where we've already discussed samskara, how those events that happen in the present are informed by prior events in the past, which determine not only what happens in the present, but also serve to condition the future. We've talked about the notion of the three gunas, of tamas, the heavy, the lower part, 
rajas, the energetic middle part, and then sattva, the radiant upper realm of ascent, and that's another threefold. And in terms of this cluster, we're getting a description of people that are sort of middling or committed to their practice, but subject to a little bit, perhaps we might even call it backsliding, to people that are in the middle and who are able to commit to these five practices that are, again, also found within Buddhist practice that was current at the time of Patanjali. And then the most intense ones, Tivra Samvega, are the ones that are closest to the delivery point. And again, this indicates Patanjali's familiarity with the gradated stages of the bodhisattva that were under discussion and being taught by active Buddhist monastics at the time that Patanjali was alive and, and doing his work. So we're going to pull apart a little bit of what is said about these three stages, and then we're going to see how this might be useful in terms of the contemporary yoga class. So first of all, that beginning sutra tells us that there are some people that receive the gift of feeling free from a body. And that means that the body is sort of the metaphorical body, that they have risen above the habituated activities that cause them to do painful actions again and again compulsively, okay? So they've sort of more or less mastered their ability to put one foot in front of the other without getting into too much trouble. And they have elevated themselves to a place of the enjoyment of nature. But these particular people might not be sufficiently grounded in their practice not to be thrown to one side or the other. And what will undoubtedly happen is that an occasion will present itself and to use a sort of popular language, when the next opportunity arises, they're going to fall off the wagon, okay? That they're going to return without a lot of reflection to their prior habits that caused them difficulty, despite all of their good intentions and Nonetheless, uh, there will be um, a little bit of a tendency to not endure for the long haul. So in the middle, there are people who have managed to cultivate a grounded practice that includes five different components. 
These are five components well known from Buddhist literature and five components that are recognizable truly to any yogi. And the first is shraddha. And I love this word. It's a very interesting word that, according to the etymologists, actually derives from putting two different words together, daha, which in this case refers to hold, and shrud, which, according to the etymologists, is actually a variant word for hrid, which is heart. So holding to heart, shraddha, translates rather nicely into faith, but a faith that is not about some abstract belief or holding the line of doctrine, but shraddha is truly engaging the world from a place of empathetic connection, shraddha. Very important practice. Second, virya. And virya is energy. The correlate word in the English language is virile in the sense of strong and with great purpose. And virya indicates that a person is holding the practice as advised earlier, uninterrupted for a long period of time, and rather than being a tree that can be easily dislodged when the slightest breeze comes along, that there's a stability, a stiti, in this notion of virya or strength. Smriti, interestingly, is equivalent to the word sati. And sati is the Pali word that is used in the sati patana to describe this practice called mindfulness. And in Buddhism, the practice involves mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the emotions, and mindfulness, remembrance of all of the teachings of the Buddha's dharma. So this is straight in the middle and indicates the, really the intensity required to abide within this practice. And again, smriti, equivalent of sati in Pali, and it involves a fourfold practice of mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of emotional state, like, dislike, or indifferent, pleasant, unpleasant, or indifferent, and then finally, a willingness to engage in the whole panoply, the whole cornucopia of teachings that are available, offered in the case of Buddhism by the Buddha. And from that, one moves into samadhi, and in Buddhism, this is the culmination of the Eightfold Path. Samadhi is the concentration to be applied. We will look at the special yogic definitions later in this text, in the, in the first pada and in the second pada. But samadhi is one description of that state like Naroda, 
where everything is calm, where there's a vision of a being up close and being in a place of unity. Beautiful yogic state. And then prajna. Prajna, again, a Buddhist term used in the Mahayana to indicate an ongoing process of discernment in each and every circumstance. And Prajna also lifted up by Patanjali here and later in the first pada as the wisdom required in order to do what must be done. So think of it, these remarkable people of great high energy and consistent resolve dwell in a place of faith, shraddha, dwell in a place of stability and strength, virya, dwell with mindfulness, mindfulness of body, breath, emotion, and the dharma itself, which constellate into both a welling up into the state of being wound, the state of having a unitive vision of one's relationship with self and universe that allows for an abiding wisdom, an abiding prajna that will make life an adventure to be explored always in service of this greater good. And then this third state, which also proceeds from a Buddhist platform, is Tivra Samvegana being asana. Not asana as in a yoga pose, but asana in being very, very, very close. Now to understand this juxtaposition of terminology, we need to understand that in Mahayana Buddhism, there arose a text called the Bodhisattva Bhumi, and in the Bodhisattva Bhumi, a very elaborate description is given of those who enter the path. And they enter the path at round one, and they ascend through 10 stages. The ninth stage is called Samvega. The ninth stage indicates and signals very intense meditative commitment, very intense meditative accomplishment. And this sutra is a little bit of a teaser because it's not until the very end of the Yoga Sutra in the fourth pada that Patanjali identifies stage 10, which is Dharma Mega Samadhi. So here, by emplacing Samvega, we're given a little bit of a preview for what's to follow at the very culmination of the yoga process, and we're given great encouragement to rise from being a person that is a little bit middling through a person, through the level of being deeply committed to rising to a place of being fully engaged and just at the brink of this abiding state referred to as Dharma Mega Samadhi. Now, as a yoga teacher, 
the question may arise, these seem very abstract. How can I use them in yoga class? And what I would invite you to do is to see them as a correlate to the frame of the gunas and never allow your students to typecast themselves as one and make sure as a yoga teacher, never write someone off as either middly, medium, or intense, but rather invite them to think and reflect and say, you know, some days my yoga practice is pretty weak. I'm not able to really do vrikshasana. I sort of fall over. When I try to sit, my pranayama gets a little bit out of whack. My mind is going here and there. And let them say to themselves, that's a day that's murdu. And everyone has those terrible, very bad, horrific days. And a new day will come. And then some days, it'll all fall into place. The faith will be there, the stability will be there, the mindfulness will be there. You'll have a moment of being whelmed and you'll arise from your yoga mat and you will just be a beacon of wisdom and truth for others. Yeah, some days are like that. Not every day. And then there will be those days building on that wonderful, blissful engagement where you feel that you're just so close. And it's important never to claim, as we will see later in the Yoga Sutra, the minute that you claim that you are in Dharma Mega Samadhi, you have lost it. So it's better to be at the place of Adimatra. It's better to be at that place of, yeah, I can taste it, I can feel it, and I'm still here in the service of my better self. I'm still here in the service of others. Okay, that's a good way for a student to forgive herself for not always being perfect, to forgive and yet celebrate those moments where things are really pretty much good. You want to forgive yourself because you don't want to get prideful about it, but you also want to affirm with confidence your ability to operate from a place of faith, from a place of strength, from a place of mindfulness within samadhi and prajna. And also to give that wonderful little bit of warning that, yeah, you can be really intense and your practice can be really, really, really good, but as one of my teachers likes to tell, she had gone in the presence of her Zen master, having really floated for several days with perfect meditations, perfect interpersonal relations, beautiful restful sleep, no regrets, only happiness, only bliss, only happiness, only bliss. And her Zen master looked her straight in the eye and said, don't worry, it won't last. And again, that gave her an abiding sense of calm when sure enough, the ebb and flow of life returned. And rather than becoming reactive, 
she was able to move forward in a place of equanimity in the midst of difficulty, not losing her cool. This is the best of yoga, to be able to live, to be able to meditate, to be able to bring that meditation, to bring that practice into the stuff of life as we find inevitably presents itself full of surprises and full of opportunity. Or Samadhi comes through dedication to Ishvara. Ishvara is a distinct seer, untouched by afflictions, actions, fruitions, or their residue. There, the seed of omniscience is unsurpassed. Due to its being unlimited by time, it is the teacher of the prior ones. Its expression is Om. Repetition of Om and realization of its purpose should be made. Thus, inward consciousness is attained and obstacles do not arise. Ishvara Pranidhanarva Ishvara Pranidhanarva Ishvara Pranidhanarva Klesha Karma Vipakashayar Aparam Urshtaha Purusha Vishesha Ishvara Klesha Karma Vipakashayar Aparam Urshtaha Purusha Vishesha Ishvara Klesha Karma Vipaka Ashayar Aparam Urshtaha Purusha Vishesha Ishvara Tatra Niratishayam Sarvajnya Bijam Tatra Niratishayam Sarvajnya Bijam Tatra Niratishayam Sarvajnya Bijam Sa Pervesham Apiguru Kalena Anavachedat Sa Pervesham Apiguru Kalena Anavachedat Sa Pervesham Apiguru Kalena Anavachedat Tasya Vachakaha Pranavaha Tasya Vachakaha Pranavaha Tasya Vachakaha Pranavaha Tajapas Tadarta Bhavanam Tadjapas Tadarta Bhavanam Tadjapas Tadarta Bhavanam Tataha Pratyak Chetanadi Gamo Pyantar Aya Bhavascha Tataha Pratyak Chetana Digamo Pyantaraya Bhavascha 
Tataha pratyak chaitanadigamo pyantaraya bhavascha. In this segment, Patanjali introduces the concept of a transcendent being. And Patanjali is quite skillful in the way to describe without defining this entity. For Patanjali, Ishvara, which at its root can be translated as God or Lord, requires our dedication requires our placing down in front of all of the intentions for our own transcendence. And interestingly, the yoga definition of God leaves God in a place of great remove. It is not possible to petition God. It is not possible to name God It is not possible to ask God to do things. It is not possible to specify the identity of God because Patanjali defines God as follows. Ishvara is a special seer, a special Purusha who has never been touched by karma or its fruitions or its residue. This automatically sets up a paradox. In order for any entity to exist, it must carry a name, but in order for a name to be attached, there must be an action, but Ishvara, by this definition, has never been confined by name, has never been confined by narrative, has never been confined by any activity, either placed upon Ishvara or delivered by Ishvara. Consequently, by making the conceptualization of Ishvara literally impossible, And by using a beautiful word called bija, or seed, a seed is planted in the mind of the yogi that, in fact, this is beyond what could ever possibly be conceptualized, and therefore, it includes sarvajna. It includes all possibilities of knowledge, because it never descends into a defined realm. At the same time, while establishing the utter beyond the beyond quality of Ishvara, there is simultaneously an invoking the presence of Ishvara by a syllable named in the translation but referred to obliquely in the original Sanskrit as pranava. Nu is to speak forth or to utter. 
Pranava is that ultimate utterance that understood for those who are familiar with Indian culture, going back to the earlier strata of philosophical languaging, that this syllable, the pranava, the utterance, is none other than om. Om, starting in the low part, vibrating up through the body, ending with the closure, inclusive of all that could be said, inclusive of all that has ever been said, inclusive of all that will be said. It, in effect, is a vibration prior to time, enduring throughout time, existing beyond time, and by uttering this vibration, accessible to the human through this very body, one places one's body feel, one places one's physiology in sync, in synchronicity with this enduring vibration that is at the core of all existence. As the physicists have told us, not to overstretch, uh, analogy, but at the core of really the physical nature of the universe, we find subatomic particles that vibrate. We find that every atom has a certain wavelength and a vibration, that every molecule similarly, and that as cells organize, that they too have a vibratory quality and it's also been acknowledged that with water, a vibratory quality, even with rock, a vibratory quality, certainly with the movement of air, a vibratory quality. And when the word OM fills space, there's an echoing back into a sense of primal presence. Patanjali goes on to say that the repetition of that syllable through japa takes one into a place that allows obstacles to be overcome. Many of you have most likely heard of nada yoga, which is the yoga of sound and beyond Om, but always inclusive of and returning to Om, virtually any mantra, any singing, any bhajan, any kirtan, establishes this potential of reprogramming the dynamic vibratory experience inseparable from the body, mind, thought, emotion, continuum. So Patanjali, as his second major piece of advice, having told people to practice daily and to develop vairagya, develop a little bit of a remove from the drama of life, as his second major advisement suggests, first of all, have a conception 
of an ultimate that allows you to not define or to pin down that ultimate in any particular way. And second says this ultimate, so transcendent, is in fact imminent, meaning indwelling. Both imminent in meaning that it could happen at any time, and immanent, meaning that this is an experience of interiority. And just as throughout history, what sets apart the human seemingly from all other species, the use of language, this provides a grammar of spirituality that has universal application. That regardless of which of the more than 200 languages spoken in India, one calls one's own language, regardless of what particular prayers one may say in one's home tradition, that the universality of Om invites people of all faiths and actually of no faith at all to participate in this way of performing yoga. And one of the interesting perspectives that I've observed and entered over the years is sort of the ebb and flow of American culture and its relationship with yoga culture. And it's sometimes uh, you'll find people attempting to make a mockery of people who say Om, and at other times you will see people just plain saying Om. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Om itself is that because by definition, it has no personhood, it can never be offended. In fact, it can just take and absorb all manner of, of insult and just simply continue with the vibration. Now this brings up the interesting question for yoga teachers. If I'm teaching in a gym and the gym is fervent about its, or even militant about its secular ground, then a yoga teacher who even might have Om as part of her practice might want to not completely leave it out, but to allow the Om to vibrate in silence. Not even discuss it, not even speak it, and if it's against the rules, certainly not invite the participants in the yoga class to chant Om, but in those moments when people, your class, line in Shavasana toward the end, what are you doing? You're attempting to bring a moment of silence. You're in a position of leadership, which means that your job is to be the best yogi possible for those people in that moment. So one of the practices that one can perhaps take on as a teacher is to thread a silent ohm with the breath, particularly in those moments of quiet.
And if in your breath, you can hear with the inhale, and in the completion of the breath, you can hear that little bit of that silent stop. And if with the exhale breath, you can then recapture a little bit of acuity in the hearing that, oh, that vibratory noise, even on the out breath, coming down to the silence of the exhale. But our breath provides constant companionship in really a sound bath that we carry with us at all times. And it's said that if you carry the Om, and if you carry this attentiveness to Ishvara, this power that defies description, this power that models our best possible behavior and calls us upward to be like Ishvara, then these wisdom sutras from Patanjali can take true practical applicability. So as we think of what does it mean if I had not been marked by samskara, if my life were not run by inconsiderate actions from the past? What would it be like if my problems were not cast about with those in my vicinity, whether friends or family, or teachers or students? What if, like Ishvara, there was pure, pristine presence in my actions. In this regard, imitatio dei comes to mind. And for Carl Jung, the great science psychologist who wrote extensively based on his self-introspection, wrote extensively about archetype, said that the ultimate archetype the ultimate embodiment to pursue is in fact amaho dehi, is the image of God, is the image of your best possible self. And later in the text, Patanjali talks about this phenomenon as ishta devata, and suggests that, well, perhaps you really do like the story of Jesus. Perhaps you really resonate with the episodes of Krishna's life. Perhaps you find something deeply inspiring about Saraswati Devi or Lakshmi Devi, one of the many goddess forms. Then perhaps as an intermediary step, 
those qualities manifested by the god or by the goddess could be the placeholder as you seek on your path of purification to allow all obstacles to dissolve and for not only your consciousness to ascend, but also for your outflows to be from a place of goodness and benevolence. Models of God and the chanting of Om can help really build a yoga path that is simultaneously personal and of personal benefit, as well as of benefit to others. The obstacles, distractions of the mind, are sickness, dullness, doubt, carelessness, laziness, sense addiction, false view, losing ground, and instability. A suffering, despairing body, and unsteady inhalation and exhalation accompany these distractions. For the purpose of counteracting them, there is the practice of one thing, or for the purpose of counteracting them, there is one thing, practice. Vyadi, stiana, samshaya, pramada, lasya, avirati, branti, darshana, alabdabhumi, Katvanavastitatvani Chittavikshepaste Antarayaha Dukaha Dharmanasyangam Ejayatva Shvasa Prashvasa Vikshepa Sahabuvaha Tat Pradishet Artam Eka Tatvabhyasaha Vyadi, Stiana, Samshaya, Pramada, Lesaya, Avarati, Branti, Darshana, Alabdabhumi, Katvana, Vista, Tatvani, Chitta, Vikshepaste, Antar, Ayaha, Dukaha, Dharmanasyangam, Ajayatva Shvasa Prashvasa Vikshepa Sahabuvaha Tat Pradishet Artam Eka Tatvabhya Saha Vyadi Stiana Samshaya Pramada Lasya Avarati Branti Darshana Alabdabhumi Katvana Vastitvani Chitta Vikshepaste Untar Ayaha Duhuka Dharmanasya Angam Ajayatva Shvasa Prashvasa 
vikshepa sahabhuvaha tat pradishedartam eka tat vabhya saha. One of the very longest of sutras, and interestingly, one that is very specific in its articulation of difficulty. And regardless of its origin, whether a Buddhist list or a Jain list or a Brahmanical Hindu list, whether Shaivite or Vaishnavite, the realms of suffering are vast. The qualities to be overcome are seemingly endless. And what we see with approaching all of the ways in which we experience difficulty are qualities of body, qualities of mind, qualities of manifested behavior. So we have flat out laziness, not so good. Sense addiction, not so good. Dullness, instability, an inability to hold one's ground. All of these are apt descriptions of those moments when the negative karmas, the klishta karmas, overwhelm our world, overwhelm our body, overwhelm our thoughts, overwhelm our emotions. And when those moments happen, we lose our capacity, we lose our agency, we lose our will, we lose, in many ways, we lose our mind. We become subject to all of the difficulties that have been part of our history. And unfortunately, we bring others down in the process. One of the ways to detect that trouble is afoot is to watch the breath. And what Patanjali says with great insight, clarity, and simplicity is that when the breath becomes dysregulated, when the inhalation and the exhalation become unsteady, that the mind and the body, dharmanasya, dharmanas is really negative headspace. Dower is from du, except really du, and duh is a prefix in Sanskrit language that comes straight over into the word dukkha, which historically is linked to the word in English, dark. So a dark mind and all that that connotes, and a hurting and despairing body. And those who fall prey to their laziness and fall prey to really lethargy can find that the body becomes utterly secondary, becomes no longer a place of joy, but merely a place of aches and pains, merely a place to be despised. 
And that's a sad way to be in the world. And echoing the earlier statement about abhyasa, about practice, Patanjali says, what can we do? What can we do with this body that has fallen into despair? What can we do with this mind that is vitiated by darkness? What can we do to overcome our various addictions? What can we do to rise up out of that downward entropy? What can we do to regulate the breath so that it becomes even? What can we do to literally bring light into the darkened mind? And this introduces the wide range of practices that will follow. So we're invited here through the negative argument to come up with our own ideas. Okay, this word abhyasa, very, very enticing. Abhyasa, practice, to be fully present in the moment. If one has become lazy, it means it's time to get up, it's time to do something. If someone is in a place of instability, then slowly come up with a strategy to find terra firma, to find firm earth again. When I reflect on my own teenage years, full as for every teenager, full of ups and downs, these friends, those friends, this part of school, this activity, that activity, running here, running there, and sometimes being so busy, losing touch. Remember, I had overcommitted when I was in high school about 11th grade, and I was in this major production down at the planetarium with rehearsals every night of the week. I was editor of the school newspaper and vice president of student government. Okay, it's true. I am a little bit on the overachiever, overactive side. But I remember losing ground. And one night in rehearsal, in the basement of Strasbourg Planetarium, just going into the restroom and sobbing. I was so tired, so tired. And in a sense, my dharmanas, my darkened minds brought me face to face with a need to simplify. And when I managed by the end of that evening, having descended into a place of deep darkness, I managed to emerge with a resolution to only stake a claim on as much ground as my body could handle. Now for some people, it may be a very different situation. I don't ever pretend to universe, universalize my particular circumstance, 
But let's imagine if there were a circumstance where someone had nothing and they needed to take a small step toward a constructive, creative moment. That may mean finding the courage to go down to the adult ed registration office and sign up for a ceramics class, whatever it may be, or in the case of yoga, finding the resolve to commit to a regular pattern of attendance within a yoga class. So how can all of this be of use for yoga teachers? On the one hand, there are seemingly only negatives in this long list of ways in which people can fall short of the mark. But on the other hand, it's a way to invite yoga students to recognize and name and identify their own humanity. It is of the nature of the human being to rest. Everyone needs restoration through a little bit of relaxation, through a little bit of pulling back. And that's something that the teacher could pursue with each of these different examples that are given. Other obstacles include really a fickle mind, unsteadiness, going here, going there, and that in particular can be remedied in part by the development of a focused yoga asana practice. A yoga teacher gives each student a tremendous gift in very simple ways. Samastiti, stand up straight. Bend forward, stretch backward, lean out to and gesture to the side and then to the other side. Feel an experience of symmetry. By returning the yoga student to body, a connection is made automatically with the mind. The yoga teacher speaks, the word reaches the ear, and then that information is processed through attentiveness to breath, a slowing of thought even in following the instructions, and then slowly, like peeling away the layers of an onion, that student can explore and discover where all of these difficult places of confusion pile up in the body. Sometimes, in fact, I'm thinking of hamstrings in particular, men have dense hamstrings, and that can be a source of stability and strength, and it also can be an opportunity to just push and stretch a little bit further. 
And then with the inhale and the exhale, timed with the rhythm of movement, there can be an alignment, a reestablishment of harmony between body, breath, and mind that does not require the mind to figure it out and then rationalize its way into a better state, but in fact, for the body itself to receive instruction and then for that instruction to remedy all of those different obstacles. Similarly, with pranayama, with the inhale breath, There's attentiveness to thought. With the holding of the breath, there's a stilling of thought. With an exhale breath, again, an attentiveness. And with the hold of the exhale, of the exhale, a stillness can come. Okay, as we will hear later in the next pada, Patanjali advises this amazing practice called Pratipaksha Bhavana, the cultivation, the bhavana of Pratipaksha, the opposite way of engaging the world. And in the very first two limbs of the Eightfold Yoga that he teaches in the second pada, we find recommended in the yamas and niyamas the cultivation of behaviors that, when undertaken, will automatically begin to undo the difficulties of this dark and despairing mind, will undo the difficulties of this upside-down and, and disordered breath, that will undo the difficulties of a body that hurts. As we will see in Pada 2, Pratipakshabhavanam, that our mind has the capacity to cultivate bhavanam, Pratipaksha, its opposite. So if Klesha karma is governing with its negativity and its dark thinking and its laziness and its confusion, then what Patanjali suggests is to develop a toolkit for counteracting those behaviors. And in that toolkit, we see if one is working from a place of attachment that leads to mental or even physical violence, cultivate its opposite. Cultivate a spirit of nonviolence, a spirit of compassion. If you're chronically challenged when it comes to telling the truth, when you're chronically challenged to report things as they are given the available data, then step back, be silent, and bring out from your internal resolve a decision to speak truth. I think many of us have heard 
since the time we were children that if you have nothing nice to say, it is better to say nothing at all. And this is one step toward finding a place that truly values the truth. Another practice advised by Patanjali is rather than becoming acquisitive, rather than defining oneself by the objects that one possesses, rather than coveting things that other people have, rather going with a cultural script of gaining more and more, whatever that may be, automobiles or houses or knickknacks for the apartment, whatever it may be, purify yourself of those potential objects of attachment by simply doing with less. These are examples, practical, ethical examples, to overcome the many obstacles of body, mind, and breath that appear, that challenge us, that become the occasion for stepping back, observing, and vowing, I can really be better than this. And with that, that desire to overcome the obstacles through breath, through action, the body that results can be a body of boundless appreciation. And with that, all obstacles, in fact, will disappear. Clarity of the mind results from the cultivation of friendliness toward the happy, compassion for those who suffer, sympathetic joy for those with merit, and equanimity toward those without merit. Maitri, Karuna, Murita, Upekshanam, Sukha, Dukkha, Punya, Apunya, Vishayanam, Bhavana, Tashchitta, Prasadanam, Maitri, Karuna, Murita, Upekshanam, Sukha, Dukkha, Punya, Apunya, Vishayanam, Bhavana, Tashchitta Prasadam. Maitri Karuna Murita Upekshanam Sukha Dukha Punya Apunya Vishayanam Bhavana Tashchitta Prasadam. This remarkable cascade of encouragement suggests that it is possible 
within specific and learnable parameters to manifest appropriate behavior in each and every circumstance. Now, as a parent some years ago of young children, we settled upon, my wife and I, a word that would redirect rather than chastise. And that word was appropriate. And when a toddler is acting out, it's possible to just quietly note the emotion behind the behavior, identify it and name it, and then quietly suggest that perhaps in this moment, in this circumstance, in this time and place, it might be appropriate to do a different behavior. And remarkably, that proves to be effective pretty much most of the time. And like that, this sutra invites discernment, discernment of other people's problems. And in order to figure out how to behave in a particular circumstance, it's important first to be able to name that circumstance. And just as with the gunas, it was suggested, oh, some things are at the base, some things move at the middle, some things lead toward the transcendent. So also, according to yoga, there are four basic human situations. And some people find themselves either episodically or even habitually in a place of happiness. The Sanskrit word for happiness, sukha, literally means a good place. One of the cognate words for sukha is actually sugar in English, or sweetness. And there are some people who are just simply lovable and happy, at least at some point or another. And what yoga recommends is to become friendly with those people. Make them your companions, and it can become infectious. If you're with people who smile, most likely you as well will smile. On the other hand, actually there's four hands here. Again, this is not a simple binary. In this instance, it's a quaternary. So we have the happy, and now we have people who experience either episodically or as part of their habitual nature, who experience dukkha. Dukkha uses that same prefix that we found with dharmanasya, in this case, dukkha. Ka, space, dukkha is a difficult place. 
we have a whole range of words in English that retain that same prefix. In English, the prefix, rather than being D-U-H, the prefix is D-I-S. Disaster, disease, disappointment, dislike, disarray. Go to the dictionary, you'll find so many words that start with dis, and almost every one of them is a place where you would rather not traverse. So what does one do when encountering someone whose place is a place of disorder, whose place is a place of darkness? And regardless where you may live, whatever city and whatever country, there will be people impinging on your awareness who are truly suffering from illness, from depravity, from all manner of difficulty, could be even homelessness, could be mental illness. So what do we do in these circumstances? Do we demonize those people? Not according to yoga. According to yoga, we do not close those people out. We do not just ignore them or shunt them or imprison them. What we do is discern their state, a difficult state, and then apply compassion, apply karuna, And the compassionate act generally is never a simple act. It could be, in Western culture, finding the appropriate social worker. It could be, if it's a friend, lend an ear, hear the story of the troubles. If it's someone who is totally out of cash, it could be that the compassionate act is to give them food, give them shelter, give them a ride, give them transport, but to meet the needs of the needy appropriately with compassion. Now, the third part of this quaternary is punya. And punya is merit. And of all of the four, this one in particular was difficult for me. And it was very difficult for me not as a teenager or as a young adult or even as a fully grown adult to go into the place of the comparing mind. And I would generally compare myself as less than in many circumstances. There was always a scholar who did it much better than I did. There was often an athlete who was just gifted with wonderful body, wonderful abilities. And my place of, what would we call it, self-shame or feeling of insecurity would lead to emotional states that are quite 
unpleasant. Here I'm doing sort of a confessional here. You don't need to be as open with your students if you choose not to be. But I would fall into places of envy, into places of jealousy that were really unpleasant, very um, unhelpful. And one day, something loosened. And rather than begrudgingly saying, oh boy, you really do that well, there was this just joy and celebration for people that do things well. And this joy has a word in Sanskrit, mudita, sympathetic joy, really rejoicing in the goodness of others rather than comparing oneself to an unattainable standard. So many important applications of mudita in our particular culture, a culture driven by images, a culture that invites looking in the mirror and looking at that image and saying, uh-uh, not measuring up. And that creates an abiding sadness and a really sort of deep form of cultural pathology. So to find that place of true celebration of the gifts and the merits of others, this is a wonderful, wonderful practice of yoga. And then the fourth, apunya. Some people are unable to do the right thing all of the time. And some people struggle to do the right thing at all. And it can result in criminal behavior. It can result in constantly hurting the feelings of others. It can result in states of alienation. And it, in the unschooled person, can result in repulsion and rejection. And what yoga says is that rather than moving into that dismissive, judgmental mind, if someone falls short of the mark, it's better to go into a place of equanimity. It's better to go into a place that can note and recognize and move forward without any sense of fear and without any sense of revulsion. Some years ago, we had a dear friend who had a little bit of difficulty, and we're not really sure if it was hygiene, but there was this odor that made the presence of this person somewhat off-putting. By going into a place of equanimity, there was an ability to connect without the recoil. And that place of equanimity was very helpful, both in affirming an ability to be 
at level with this other person, but also for that other person to feel it was okay. Now, there's two other aspects that I want to discuss etymologically regarding this particular cluster of sutras. One is the judicious and consistent employ of the feminine gender. Maitri, Karuna, Mudita, Upeksha, Patanjali chose to inflect each of these words in the feminine gender. And for those of you who have studied French or Spanish or some other languages, many languages in the world actually attribute gender to words, and we're supposed to just ignore it. But he was so consistent and purposeful, not only in these practices, but in so many of the others that are listed in using the feminine version of the word that one cannot help but appreciate the genius of Patanjali and lifting up and redeeming the value of yoga practice within the realm of manifest reality, which itself finds it marked with feminine gender. Second, the word prasada exists here. And prasada is this wonderful gift, in this case, a gift of a clarified consciousness that adorns what's possible through yoga. So as a yoga teacher, how can we put all this together? And one of the ways is to invite your students, many of them who have probably heard of mindful practice, to be aware that for Buddhists, this is the gold standard. When the Buddha pronounced 500 of his disciples one by one to have achieved arhat status, to have achieved full liberation, he states that each and every one of them, when they relinquished their attachment to ego, automatically manifested Maitri, Karuna, Murita, and Upeksha. Friendliness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Second, you can invite your students to reflect upon blessed food, prasadam, as the stuff of what we as people of yoga can offer to the world. And that our blessing from the world that comes through the blessings of yoga is to become people of discernment who rather than being reactive are thoughtful, contemplative, and from that contemplation of conditions of happiness, of suffering, of auspiciousness and inauspiciousness, we can find in the toolkit that is yoga appropriate behaviors to bring out, and we can, even in our sitting, dwell on such things as sympathetic joy in the occasion of encountering someone who is just really great, 
of manifesting compassion when confronted, and sometimes it takes the form of a confrontation of someone who is really down and out and like that. So in crafting these discernments and in sharing them with your students, first it's so important to interiorize these even for a week as part of one's practice and practice this before you speak it. Seek out situations where people are full of smile and be friendly. Befriend those people with metta, with Maitri. And find even one small instance of someone who's in trouble and do some simple act of kindness. Find someone who is just beautiful in every way and light up the room with your delight at their goodness. And then perhaps, as I have practiced a little bit, when you see someone who is just seemingly in a place where you would never want to go, rather than being judgmental, find a way to keep your equipoise. And suggest to your students to journal. Imagine circumstances where they might be able to apply these four abodes, the Brahma Vihara, or ways in which they can actively practice. This is a lifetime. This has been embraced by Jains, by Buddhists, by yogis, by people really of all faiths, to know what the circumstance, the situation presents, and then respond in such a way that you can elevate both yourself and those who either are happy or afflicted or really good or not so good. Let everybody move into a place of higher goodness, into a place of yoga. expulsion and retention of the breath, or steady binding of the mind arises in the activity of involvement with a condition, or having sorrowless illumination, or on a mind in a condition free from attachment, or resting on knowledge derived from dream or sleep, or from meditation as longed for, self-mastery extends from the smallest to the greatest. Prachardana vidharanabhyam va pranasya Pracharadana vidharanabhyam va pranasya. Pracharadana 
vidaranabhyam va pranasya vishayavati va pravrittir utpana manasaha stutinabandhani vishayavati va pravrittir utpana manasaha stutinabandhani vishayavati va pravrittir utpana manasaha stutinabandhani vishoka va jyotishmati vishoka va jyotishmati vishoka va jyotishmati vitaraga vishayam vachitam vitaraga vishayam vachitam vitaraga vishayam vavichitam Svapna nidra jnana alambanam va. Svapna nidra jnana alambanam va. Svapna nidra jnana alambanam va. Yata abhimata dhyanad va. Yata abhimata dhyanad va. Yata abhimata dhyanad va. Paramanu Paramamahatvantosya Vashikaraha Paramanu Paramamahatvantosya Vashikaraha Paramanu Paramamahatvantosya Vashikaraha Okay, this cascade of vahas shows the remarkable capacity of Patanjali to include so many different modalities of connection. And this one begins by again talking about breath. The breath so key to the yoga process. Some hundreds of years after Patanjali, around a thousand years ago, a Hatha Yoga text called the Yamanaska extols the capacity of the mind to come to a place of amanas, of no mind, of stillness. Described by the Jains in Hemachandra's Yoga Shastra, similarly, that to be able to master the breath, to be able to master and slow the breath, gives one the ability to understand thought and to slow thought. So in this, and it's echoing what will follow in the next pada as well, that through the expulsion of the breath, and the holding of the exhaled breath. Yoga will emerge. And in the next sutra, it suggests that by immersing oneself in activity, 
whatever that activity may be, that there will be an absorption that will thread thought and moment and body and emotion into a place of unbreakable unity. So that, for instance, if you're doing an art project and all of your senses are engaged and your thoughts are focused, whether it be ceramics or whether it be some other form of handicraft or whether it be even the process of design, that that can in fact bring the mind to a place of stability, can bring the mind to a point of refinement where external concerns disappear. And when these types of moments happen, we can find great joy. And Jyotish is this notion of something just plain lighting up. It's a very popular name for women in India and for little girls. And Jyoti describes an irrepressibly cheerful disposition and to experience the full presence of a joyous child and to remember those moments and allow those emotions to be the go-to, that cultivation of sorrow-free illumination and lightness, that too just simply becomes practice that may manifest as a yoga of kindness. Now, another example of a yoga to be observed is to, from the trove of one's memories or from a moment that for you has become a reliable moment, is to be able to go to a place or go to a memory where there is carefree abandon. And by that, it could be just simply going to the forest, going to the beach, going to that special spot within your room, and just simply allowing the mind, the senses to drift, to float, to be freed of attachment. And another practice, a practice that I have a very particular way of following, and it has to do with dream and sleep. And there's two examples that I'd like to give. One, which has echoes in the Upanishads, Chandogya Upanishad in particular, but an instance that most people experience 
where in the middle of the day, you find yourself with the blessed opportunity to take a nap, and you go into that nap. I had a delicious nap yesterday of this sort, and you just go completely into that place of Abhava where everything disappears. And then 10, 20 minutes later, you just resurface and you're restored and you're renewed and you are rebooted in a way that is energetically auspicious. And similarly, throughout the course of human life, and I've asked this question now of probably thousands of students, do you remember a dream that made you happy? And virtually everyone finds a smile growing on the face and a little bit of a nod of acknowledgement. And what Patanjali advises is remember those happy dreams. I keep a dream journal near my bed. Sometimes it's confusing dreams. Sometimes it's happy dreams. And just to revisit that journal that narrates dream life can be elevating and it can also lead to some rather significant insights. In his most open sutra of all, he says, Abhimata Dhyana, that whatever catches your fancy, meditate on that. You can meditate on something that is traditional and sublime and very specific, or you can meditate perhaps on the joy of the well-cooked meal. That in itself can be a delightful meditation. And he invites, extending from there, for us to consider our meditative moments that are very small, paramanu, like an atom, and consider those moments, those aha epiphanies, where everything in the universe seems to make sense. And those are the very, very writ large moments of spiritual connection. And he says, own your self-mastery through recognizing both the very small and the very large. Now, part of the beauty of being a yoga teacher is that your job is to affirm positivity in your students. And this particular list, combined with the advice of saying Om and the earlier advice of understanding your thought processes, as well as the advice to be regular in your practice and find it within yourself to be able to rise above pettiness and become that seer, to become that observer. All of this can be gifted to your students 
encouraging them, giving them permission to play in their practice of yoga. Not only play with, oh, I can do this particular asana trick, but play with the circumstances of life. To be able to recognize that, oh, yeah, if I really focus on my writing, or if I really focus in the garden, or if I really focus even as I'm driving in my automobile, or even better, if I really focus when I'm a passenger in an automobile and I can let the rhythm of the fields and the forest and even the patterns of the highway speak to me and bring me some joy, that's a way to enter into an experience of connection. And if your student can be invited to affirm that particular activity that brings them joy and see that as an important part of their yoga, whether it perhaps might be surfing, it might be running, it might be knitting, it might be conversation with friends, all of those things taken in a spirit of equanimity, taken in a spirit of upeksha, taken in a spirit of sympathetic joy, taken to a level of expression of friendliness and expression of compassion, all of those joys can be part of the off-the-mat yoga. In particular, because of my own practice, I encourage you as a yoga teacher to narrate your dreams onto paper and begin to develop a little bit of intimacy with your dream life. In India, there's a group, particularly of women, who suffer deeply in their waking state. These women, have leprosy, and they live a life of poverty, regardless of their place of origin, many of them from very well-educated and even wealthy families. But they no longer can live outside of a community of lepers. And what's been discovered by these women is an ability to live an alternate reality what in Western culture is sometimes called lucid dreaming. And these women gain great wisdom and insight in their dream life and live in palaces in their dreams. They get advice about healing people in their dreams. And not that we need in our culture to build out quite to this extent, but they became sought after as spiritual advisors, people would come to them with their troubles, sit a little bit at a distance. Of course, Hansen's disease is quite disfiguring, but they would be able to communicate from the depths of their dreams. People will come and say, I have this need. 
They would take that need into their dream and the person would come back and get advice. And we can do this in our own small way with our own dreams. And as I was raising my children in the morning, this is a long-standing tradition of the Iroquois nation in Western New York State, in the Finger Lakes region and the Great Lakes region. The rise of the morning, the first question to be asked of those in your company is, tell me about your dream. And the elders of that community would sometimes dismiss dreams as not important, but every once in a while, a dream will come, a dream that will speak to your condition and perhaps give you a little inspiration to move forward, to move upward, to reach out, to extend, and also in the instance of precognitive dreams, to be affirmed of the life choices in front of you and in back of you and in the present moment. Time in yoga collapses and the dream offers an opportunity to move into and to really play with a sense of the collapsibility of time. Now, personal disposition. Abhimata, what do you yearn for? And as we talked earlier, talking about Ishvara, as well as about Ishtadevata, Patanjali says, as long as you're moving increasingly toward the sattva, then whatever it is that will bring you forward and upward, let that become the object of your meditation. By meditating, by following your heart's desire, by following what Joseph Campbell advised, following your bliss, yoga gives you permission to take the raw material and the rough and tumble of your life, find a ground upon which to stand, and then in standing on that ground and by featuring with your imaginative capacities where you most like to land, then, slowly by slowly, step by step, day by day, through steady, sustained practice, that yoga can and will become manifest. A yoga grounded in steadiness and grounded in calm. The accomplished mind of diminished fluctuations, like a precious or clear jewel, assumes the color of any near object and has unity among grasper, grasping, and grasped. Kashina Vritair. Abhijatasyeva maner grahiter grahana grahyeshu tad sta tad anjana 
Ta Sama Pitihi Kashina Vriter Abijatas Yeva Maner Grahiter Grahana Grahyeshu Tat Sta Tad Anjanata Sama Pitihi Kashina Vriter Abhijatasyeva maner grahiter grahana grahyeshu tat sta tad anjanata samapatihi samapati this remarkable word defines summarizes, encapsulates the yoga process. And it's a word that is about verticality, horizontality. It's a word about reaching out, and it's a word about recovery. Recovery in the sense of going to that place of yoga, that place of connection, that in significant ways obliterates distinctions, not distinctions in terms of clarity, but distinctions in terms of that go-to place of the fettered mind, of the clouded mind, that wants to separate one thing from another, from a place of judgment, from a place of ego, from a place of simply being driven by past samskaras that predicate and more or less set up our reality to be one way or the other way. With samapati, that tendency toward division dissolves. Samapati literally means the together falling and flying and joining of things, okay? Pat means either to fall or to fly. Ah means approaching, coming toward. And some is together. And in many ways, this definition becomes the way, the best way to understand what Patanjali later refers to as samadhi. Okay, same prefixes, the together and the up toward and the close. With dhi, it's about vision. With pat, it's about this occurrence, this sort of instantaneous presentation of reality in a particular event. So what we see is that if the vrittis, okay, the vrittis, remember, come in these five different forms of direct perception, error, imagination, sleep and dream, and number five, memory, that if these fluctuations are in a place of kashina, in a place of being diminished, 
in a place of calm. That state that arises, the analogy used by Patanjali is that it becomes like, that event becomes like a precious jewel. And he goes on to state that just as a clear jewel, such as a diamond, will take on the color of any object near to that jewel, so also when the mind reaches this pristine state of clarity, it will take on an experience without putting that interference of samskara in between. And in this moment, in this rather remarkable, elevated state of consciousness, a collapse occurs of difference. And here we find a very sophisticated analysis, borrowing perhaps, or at least in conversation with the insights of Mahayana Buddhism, particularly of Nagarjuna, we see an analysis of experience in terms of three vectors, three moments. One is, and the first one mentioned, is the moment of the grahitur. Okay. Now this suffix tur is a suffix that we have in English. The literal translation of grahitur would be grasper or grabber, and it's similar to what we have lawyer, teacher, doctor, father, mother, okay, this er is a very, very old convention in Indo-European languages indicating agency. So we begin with an acknowledgement of the grasper, of the perceiver. Second, we have the word grahana, and grahana is the flowing out of the process of grasping. And then grahya, grahya is that upon which the sensory or the mental process lands. So grahitur would be subject, grahana would be process of cognition, and grahya would be the object. And in a state of samapati, these three rise up simultaneously such that the object cannot be separated from the grasper of the object, nor from the process by which an object is known. So in terms of my own daily practice, I have a sadhana, I'll share with you, invite you to consider for yourself. But I have a routine where every morning I wake up and I make chai. So my recipe for chai is a little bit of clove, a little bit of the, of the spice that comes from the Indian grocery store, a little bit of cumin seed, a little bit of red pepper, hot stuff, 
and a little bit of cinnamon, and put that all together, let it drain, let it sit, and then I bring it out to the patio where I do my sadhana. And my sensory field for this period of yoga includes a kindled flame, includes just beyond the edge of the patio, a bubbling fountain, includes some beautiful native plants that have taken root in our garden. And it also includes some incense that is wafting as well as sort of the ambiance of the morning. I'm an early morning person, so this is really before sunrise and during sunrise. And as the gaze falls out upon this really quite beautiful constructed tableau, reminders are brought into mind of the fragrance. And through the different seasons, different fragrances present. It may be a particular blooming flower, like a jasmine, or it could be um, something such as a ceanothus, whatever it may be, but the sense of smell lands through the process of grahana upon this object of fragrance. And then next, I've mentioned the tea. So the tea, with that range of spices, leaves within the field of experience a little bit of a residue, detectable even now, of this mix of spices that energize and awaken the object of flavor. And then the kindled flame, and the rising sun, and the forms illuminated. Again, the seer, the grahitur, the grahana, the process of seeing, and then the beauty that can be experienced. And then the fourth object of sense, the incense wafting, not only providing and adding layers to the fragrance, but also the visual impact of seeing the incense smoke waft, and then feeling as the morning breeze will touch my skin, and this, the fourth object of sense, and then the fifth object of sense, through the vehicle of the ears, will be the sounds of the morning. Depending upon the season, there could be mockingbirds, there could be a time of quiet, there could be crows, every once in a while the call of a hawk, and those are sounds of nature. And then, depending upon where you are, there could be the sound of an airplane, there could be the sound of traffic, all of them, all of these sounds, all of these grahyas, all of these objects, reminding us of who we are, where we are, our positionality within space. And then threaded with all of that, those sensory relationships with externals, directing this sort of traffic of sensorium toward the seer, toward the grahitur, toward that grasper, 
With this, we also find the layering of all of the different possible thoughts, and then even underlying the thoughts, the emotions. So that for the wakening process, uh, an early morning yoga, to take into account and to literally take stock, take inventory of ah, the capacity to smell, ah, the capacity to taste, the capacity to see, to touch, to hear, and allow those to, in a sense, whelm, to embrace, to give that honor to life itself, life undeniably known through the senses, linked with intentional thoughts and grounded in emotion. An emotion, in this case, of daily cultivation of appreciation. Now, as a yoga teacher, how might one gain a glimpse and then share a glimpse of this remarkable process of acknowledging the present moment through the senses, through the thoughts, through the emotions? How might one draw upon analogies that will convey the sense of Kashina Vritti? Now, this notion of Kashina Vritti, equivalent to Naroda, describes that elan, to use a French word, or that enthusiasm, to use a wonderful Greek derived English word that means to see the God in all things, and theusiasm. Enthusiasm is seeing that connection with the divine in all things. So as a yoga teacher, you have this tremendous responsibility of acknowledging first to yourself and then sharing quietly and often indirectly with your students that when they come to those states of quiet, whether it be a sustained exhaled breath in a seated position, or in Shavasana, or in the exquisite hold of a standing balanced posture. An awareness floods experience. And a oneness takes place between the experience, the process of experience, and the experiencer. So as a teacher, you can feel those moments of deep calm. You can feel those moments of release. You can feel those moments described as Chitta Vritti Narodaha, Kashina Vritti, 
those moments of abiding calm that allow one to, in a sense, swim through all of the densities of karmas and samskaras and past memories and future expectations. And through the process of yoga, to land on the other side. A metaphor, perhaps, of diving into a pond, allowing yourself to consciously make waves, and then arriving at the other shore, and then turning back and watching as the ripples subside, and watching as the clear, calm pond restores to that state of blessed equilibrium. Kshinavritti, so important. And samapati, okay, samapati, this acknowledgement that whatever we have arises from this mixing it up of sensory, of mental process, of emotional process, this divine relationship between subject and object. Now, the subject, not the ego, not the thinking mind, but the quiet mind, that seer, that purusha, that self or atman, normally gets all covered up with ego and activity. But by using the field of activity as, in a sense, a playground, as a way of designing an experience that will bring that deep calm that reflects great possibility for transcendence in the stuff, the raw material of life, that dance, that back and forth, that grand experiment of creating the moment as a yoga teacher for your students to be able to just simply let go and then giving them the space to dwell without exertion, without memory, without anticipation, to be able to dwell purely in the present moment. This truly is the gift of yoga, embodied, encapsulated in this very succinct and very beautiful metaphor captured by Patanjali in this Yoga Sutra, Samapati. Thanks for listening to this episode of Professor Chapel's lecture series about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Discover more episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or on podcast.glo.com. I'm Derek Mills. <laughs>